0: Window we'll tomorrow and Radio on in a few weeks. It's all happening, so I'm relying on you, our regular or maybe irregular listeners to this programme, to donate so that we can contribute to the grand total of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars needed to keep 3CR working for yet another year. And of course it's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six. Today we have part two of the interview with Sasha gillies Lakagis broadcaster and PhD student, looking at the history of Nicaragua in Central America. Then on to a new pandemic with Emeritus Professor Stuart Rice. What is really happening in the Pacific with someone who really knows, journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. Kathy Kelly and friends teaming up with actor Martin Sheen. Focus on the war between Ukraine and Russia. But we found him, Mr. Kevin Healy, and he's had a week.
1: A week, Jane Listener, when former Big Supremo Scuttlebem or Lash Sun, aka Scumos, doesn't that sound good? Former Big Supremo Scummo, is laying a little kid low with a rugby tackle while playing soccer, turned out to be a harbinger of what the electorate had in store for him. Poor, poor scummo, a stretcher job. As we concluded last week, our only enjoyment on election night is watching the losers lose. And this one was just so special, wasn't it? Election night just so enjoyable as our deepest hopes. It'd be lovely, we thought, if it's, it's, but it's wishful thinking to think they'll all go. But no, our deepest wishes granted. Down they went, soon to be not much more than the answer to the odd trivia question. The result either confirms or refutes the power of prayer, because we can assume Scummo was praying fervently to the dear baby Jesus to let him win. Increasingly fervently, we'd assume, as the execution drew closer, yet next day there he was in his God loves you if you're rich church, praying and shedding tears. The dear baby had failed him, but... It's certain that many, many, many more people were praying that he wouldn't win, and so it leaves the answer to the power of prayer up in the air, so to speak. Only disappointment on election night, and I still recall with glee, election night 1983, when the defeated Malcolm Wage Freezer burst into tears, and, and I was hoping. That bit was disappointing, but at least Scummo shed a tear in church and lost the false bravado of the night before. Of course, in our world of Tweedledee, Tweedledum politics, the converse of that enjoyment is the disappointment of watching the non-losers non-lose, with the small, oh so small consolation that the socialist party is not quite as bad as the caring business class hayseed and sheepshit coalition, and thus we now live in a socialist dystopia. Oh, sorry, utopia. Although already, new big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital has warned the budget bottom line is worse than they thought and therefore oh yes we've heard it all before which bit of that do we find surprising meanwhile news big supremo anthony all being oozy did his bit for all those who overwhelmingly voted for climate change if there is such a thing by jetting off to japan where he cosied up to the u.s of the u.n of the u.s of the world big supremo Joe biden capital who had just everyone pissing themselves laughing as he cracked the funniest of jokes about Anthony being tired and okay if he went to sleep. And I'm sure we all thought if Joe has ambitions to be a stand-up comedian, he should stick to his day job. But then on the other hand, cracking jokes that are as flat as a tack could be better for the world, So, so it's a tough choice. While back here, the socialist climate change minister elect Chris Bowen, the capital, acknowledged the massive vote calling for huge cuts in pollution by announcing the socialists would not commit to huge cuts in pollution, not budge from their commitment to forty three percent by twenty thirty, not support a more aggressive decarbonisation pathway that would derail new mega fossil fuel investments such as would side with profit sixteen and a half billion scarborough gas project off Western true blue Aussie, which should make a major contribution to slashing any hopes of slashing pollution. Ah, uh, there's a promising start. It took one day for the cracks to open, with the true-blue capitalist review pouring pure logic into the cracks by editorially advising Chris Bowen to Capital, he is right. Well, we know that. Oh, no, sorry, he is right to push back against the Greens and Teal demands because the socialists and the coalition lot got 57% of the vote between them. See? Logic run riot. Just a small problem. One, the coalition, in case the capitalist review editorial room just happened to miss it, just happened to lose the election. And two, the green and teal members demanding to go significantly further got more votes than the socialists. Woodside, with Prophet Supremo, Meg O'Neill before profit, proved the logic of the logic by telling a world gas conference, and I suspect a perfect title for that lot, gas conference in South Korea, that in the current economic climate, customer demand for low carbon goes out the window. We must emit heaps, and if we look out the window, we'll see the insignificant impact on the non-economic climate that doesn't matter. While Meg and Western his Supremo Mark McGowan Carbon said there was no threat post-election to the Scarborough project, and Mark displayed his environmental credentials by telling us, I support further action on climate, but cancelling this $16.5 billion project is not an option. What's more, he said, if that uh, True Blue Aussie doesn't supply countries with gas, then they'll use coal. So a massive fossil project is saving the environment from fossils. Our new minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect Penny left wing, headed off to Fiji after flying off to Japan and back doing her bit for the environment and told them True Blue Aussie would be a leader on climate change and these ingrates responded. The true blue Aussie would not be a leader on climate change if it stuck to its election commitments, which were exposed during the election as failing to go anywhere near the Paris one and a half degree commitment, a point the ingrates thanklessly pointed out got a feeling if crispo and the capital and the government don't lift their ambition they could learn to hate the senate as much as former big supremo and world's greatest worst ex-treasurer paul's swill Speaking of capital, great news for investors in childcare and aged care behemoths, with the new government promising to hand them trillions. Monday, their shares shot through the roof, showing their, their great belief in laissez-faire competition policy on the great level playing field of world's best practice. For these capitalists it really is a socialist government, and the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all wasted no time advising the government that it must return to the great days of the aforementioned Paul and nuclear hawk governments, great economic reforms like wage freezes and evil unions strapped into a straitjacket. Clearly, wages are the greatest threat to all of us. As by Monday last week, our old mate Innes Will Cost, the workers of the Trouble Aussie Industry Profits Group, told us pointing out the caring business class was under pressure from evil unions pushing wage rises to an unsustainable level, including the ACTU's outlandish claim for a 5.5% minimum wage rise, the preposterous proposal that the price of labour should rise in line with other prices in the caring business class economy. Thank goodness we've got wise practitioners like us to alert us to these dangers. And Troubler was his richest person. Gina Harthart, displayed her patriotic concern for our security by demanding the government deploy drones and sea mines in the southwest and a $4.3 dry dock for train-killer ships and submarines must be constructed in the Pilbara region, and showing her foresight and concern, Gina knows exactly where to build it. It's pure coincidence. We can be sure Gina wouldn't have even realised that the ideal spot she has discovered just happens to be exactly from where her empire exports its iron ore. Pure coincidence with innocent gina advising the government we're in good hands one genuine positive listener and i'm being totally serious for once is that the incoming attorney general mark Dreyfus has promised to review the long-running case against former act attorney general bernard collery over former minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect alexander's a legal bugging of timor leste on behalf of the aforementioned woodside with profits investigating why evidence must be held in secret and whether he can withdraw the prosecution altogether. I am yet to hear a cogent explanation of how the public interest is served by the ongoing attempts to prosecute mister Collery, he said. See, that's a positive. And the Beli- Bel, Bel-, Bel- Polyela family, another positive, say it properly, Kevin, as the ever popular scummer goes down the gurgler here, over in Her Grace's Majesty's home country they planned a statue of former big Supremo Maggie Thatchair for Westminster, but abandoned plans over fears of A motivated far-left movement who may be committed to public activism may anyway after spending 530 grand true figure on the statue it must be made of gold or something they plan to spend another a hundred grand on an unveiling ceremony in Grantham near where her family had that grocery store but oh dear Maggie No, let's show respect and give her a proper title. Baroness Thatched Hair was so popular, a group proposing an egg-throwing contest attracted support from thousands, thousands. Poor Maggie, poor poor Baroness. So they quietly erected it in Grantham without ceremony, and it took about two and a half minutes, give or take, for the first egg to liven up the day for the pigeons. Worse, the egg-throwing far-left thousands are calling for it to be pulled down. Oh dear, if only Maggie, or sorry, the Baroness, was still around, because in her day this wouldn't have happened. The poor couldn't afford an egg. The current incumbent, Boris Johnson the Gog, photographed toasting with a glass of the demon drink in his hand, surrounded by copious bottles of alcohol, said he had no idea he was at a party. But he promised that whatever he didn't think he was at would not happen again. We've changed the law, so it's now quite okay to have orgies at at Downing Street. As Constable Peter Duffer is, like you know, about to become caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo, what's left of them is attempting to give him a human persona, one telling us what a warm, caring person Pete is, asked but but why did he walk out on the stolen children apology why did he make a very funny joke about pacific islands sinking under the weight of climate change which pete knows doesn't exist such side-splitting humoury he makes joe biden capital look genuinely funny why did he oppose same-sex marriage the apologist said well he says what he believes but that doesn't make him any less a warm caring person and well yeah probably not but it, but it doesn't make him any more a warm caring person either and anyway i'm not sure we could stomach the sight and sound of constable duffer trying to look and sound human thus finally let's hope the hayseed and Sheepshit party we're recording this before yesterday's vote party doesn't do anything irresponsible like dump barnacle as leader but but i fear the worst just hope Constable Duffer and Barnacle as their supremos to win back the electorate with their charm, wit and progressive policies comes to pass. Let's hope Constable Duffer and Barnacle are a satirist dream. Good afternoon.
0: And of course, Kevin, will be back on 3CR again tomorrow morning, nine o'clock for City Limits.
2: Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon.
3: We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year.
2: Independent community media is vital and we need your support to keep community strong.
3: The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June.
2: To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 039419-8377.
3: or drop in at 21 Smith Street Fitzroy during business hours.
2: 3CR. Keep Keep community community strong.
3: strong.
0: Now, on Tuesday Home Time, part two of the interview, looking at the recent history of Nicaragua with journalist, activist, and PhD candidate, Sasha
4: Gilles-Lakakis. So, as I said, the US, by 1933, has failed to um, unseat Sandino. They cannot defeat him. And they end up withdrawing from the country because of popular discontent and because of the losses, the military losses, that they've received from Sandino's movement. They essentially let elections run their course in 1933, but they install, a, or they create, I should say, a key institution to make sure that their legacy and their influence remains intact. Now, this is the National Guard. So in 1933, literally months before they're going to leave Nicaragua, they create this National Guard, which is a combination of the military and the police force, and these are all individuals that are either loyal to the US, so their leadership has been cultivated by the United States over the past decade that the US has been in control of Nicaragua, and it is an institution that is totally financed and trained by the US government. So they essentially established like a state within the state in Nicaragua, and that's this National Guard. So nonetheless, there are elections in 1933, and Juan Bautista Sacasa, who is a liberal, he's a He's a relatively progressive individual. He was he sided with Sandino. He was supportive of the guerrillas. He is elected in an, in pretty much what is one of the first major you know free and fair elections in Nicaragua's history. There were a few others, but this is a generally recognised as a free and fair election. And he becomes the new president of Nicaragua. Unfortunately, this liberal government only lasts three years. So the National Guard has already begun plotting the overthrow of the new government. And the leader of the National Guard is a certain Anastasio Somoza-Garcia. Um, he's the eldest of the Somoza family, which, of course, becomes an infamous political dynasty in Nicaragua. Um, now, the eldest of the family, this man, is, he's known as Somoza-Garcia, and he has Sandino assassinated in 1934. So he invites Sandino to the capital, Managua, um, to essentially discuss a total, supposedly to discuss, um, a total cessation of hostilities and he betrays Sandino. So he lies about the intention of this visit and when Sandino arrives in the capital, he's executed by the National Guard. And just a few years later in 1936, Somoza Garcia overthrows the Sacasa government, the Liberal government, in a coup d'etat. And in the following months, there are hundreds of men, women, and children who are suspected to be collaborators of either Sandino or Sucasa. They are executed in the capital city, Managua. And this is where the Somoza dynasty begins. So this family ends up ruling Nicaragua pretty much for the next 40 years. It's an obscene amount of time. So leading figures of the National Guard are given control of um, government enterprises, radio healthcare facilities, railroad you name it, they essentially parceled off as private property to the leadership of the National Guard and of course to Somosa's family and his close connections. Now his rule, much like that of his children that would come later, is characterized by intense inequality, so a vast concentration of wealth and power in the hands of the Somosa family itself and Horrific levels of violence against social movements, unions, indigenous people, the former slave communities on the Caribbean coast. And worst of all, and most humiliatingly for most Nicaraguans, intense U.S. penetration in all aspects of Nicaragua's political and economic life. So the U.S. government, U.S. corporations openly bribe the Somozas to receive contracts at the expense of local companies or even European and Latin American companies looking to do business in Nicaragua. And, you know, many companies and many uh, services and industries are actually just given over to U.S. politicians or U.S oligarchs. Much of Nicaragua ends up being owned by people living outside of the country. And, of course, this fosters rampant corruption, incredible levels of corruption, even for Central America. The Somosas are, are exceptional. Uh, they're artists, let's say, when it comes to corruption. Now, in 1956, though, Somosa Garcia is assassinated. Now, many believe, we don't know for sure, but there's a lot of people who believe that the Chamorro family actually ordered the assassination because during this period, the Chamorros are essentially sidelined by the Somozas, and they, they lose a lot of their valuable influence and their contracts and their, their monopolies, for example, over the media. And it essentially becomes an inter-oligarchic war. So these two, these two families, these two dynasties, essentially begin fighting one another. Somosa Garcia is assassinated, many believe, because of this conflict between the two. So his first son, Luis Somoza, rules briefly until 1963. Then he has a heart attack and he dies. And then we have the notorious Anastasio Somoza taking over and taking the reins of power. So this is, of course, apart from his father, he's the most well known of the Somozas. You know, by the early 1970s, after another decade of Somoza rule, The family owns 23% of all land in Nicaragua, so almost a quarter of the country is owned by the Somoza family. Most rural Nicaraguans are living on less than $1 a day, and this is something that isn't raised a lot when we discuss uh, Nicaragua and U.S. influence. But Nicaragua becomes a dumping ground for illegal U.S. pesticides and other really, really destructive chemicals that are banned in the U.S., but are essentially allowed to be used in Nicaragua because U.S. agribusiness bribes the samosas um, and lets them use these illegal fertilisers and these cheaper fertilisers in Nicaragua and on Nicaraguan territory. And this leads to a situation whereby 17% of all deaths in Nicaragua, so almost 20%, one-fifth of all deaths in Nicaragua, are caused by polluted rivers and polluted air because of these U.S. corporations just abusing their privileges and abusing their control over the Somoza family to use these illegal pesticides in the country. It's it's environmental devastation and it takes Nicaragua many, many decades to recover from this. Um, But this isn't mentioned a lot, but the environmental legacy is is equally as, as shocking really. Now of course all of this doesn't go unnoticed. You know in the 1960s we see the emergence of the Frente Sandinista de Liberación Nacional, so the Sandinista Front for National Liberation. So they are, of course, inspired by the legacy of Sandino and by the Cuban Revolution at this point, and they're looking to create a nationalist and socialist Nicaragua that is finally free from U.S. rule. And they begin another guerrilla struggle. So they begin a guerrilla struggle in the 1960s, and it goes, of course, into the 1970s. Now, the insurrection really takes off after 1972, which is when we have the devastating earthquake in Managua. So 500,000 people are left homeless. The capital city is flattened. And over 10,000 people die as a result of this natural disaster. Now, if this wasn't bad enough, the Somoza family absolutely botch the relief response. They embezzle most of the international funds that have been donated by, you know, celebrities, by other countries. They just take most of that money and don't even dedicated towards reconstruction um, or support for the people that have had family members die or that have lost their homes or their businesses and this leads to mass uprisings against the samosas uh, most of which fall under the banner or the leadership of the fsln so the sandinista front and by 1978 the Somozas are really struggling to maintain power, uh, to the point where Anastasio Somoza is carpet-bombing Nicaraguan cities, he's carpet-bombing his own cities to try and kill as many guerrillas as possible. It's indiscriminate because he is aware that there is so much popular support for this movement against his corrupt regime. Now, just a year later, in 1979, the Somoza family, or the Somoza dynasty, has to relinquish power, they have to flee the country, and the National Guard-led regime collapses. So most of the National Guard flees to Miami or to neighbouring Honduras or Costa Rica, which are both U.S. allies, and Somoza himself flees to Paraguay, which is ruled by another dictator, Alfredo Stroessner, but he's assassinated only one year later in 1980 in Paraguay, by the Argentinian Revolutionary Workers' Party. So they, send, they actually send operatives into Paraguay and assassinate the last of the Somosas. So this is the way that it collapses, the regime collapses, and the Sandinistas come to power. There's, a, there's excellent footage and photographs of Sandinista guerrillas and Sandinista supporters filling the squares of major cities particularly in Managua, the capital. It's very reminiscent of the Cuban Revolution, actually. And we have Daniel Ortega. He's the leader of this movement. He's, um, uh, he's only 33, but he's risen very quickly through the ranks. He's born to a rural, poor family um, with indigenous... There are some indigenous roots there. And he ends up becoming the leader of Nicaragua. Um, he's a very popular individual. He's a very well-read individual, very, very sympathetic, for example, to the Cuban Revolution. He becomes very close personal friends with Fidel Castro. He establishes very strong ties with Cuba uh, and then the Soviet Union. And instantly, immediately um, after taking power, he begins implementing a socialist reform agenda. So he implements universal public education, public health care. He establishes strong unions with real political power. So they're for the peasants. Um, so that they can have a voice in political decision-making, and he implements genuine land reform to start stripping away at the monopolies that the Somoza dynasty and the National Guard had created. So actually breaking these oligarchic controls over the Nicaraguan economy, giving out a lot of the land to peasants and collectives that have just been created, or bringing them under the control, of course, of the Nicaraguan state, Now, initially, the U.S. is watching it. They're obviously very concerned. They wanted the Somozas to stay in power for as long as possible. But they think, or they hope, I think, that they can control the Sandinistas by continuing to fund the Nicaraguan government. So, of course, they had been subsidizing virtually the the Somoza dynasty. And they hope that by continuing to pour money into Nicaragua, which has a depressed economy, which is still suffering from the earthquake, you know, the aftermath, they're hoping that the Sandinistas are desperate enough to accept that funding and implement austerity and neoliberalism. Where's the Chamorro family at this time? Yeah, now the Chamorros occupy a very interesting position throughout this whole period. So initially, when the Sandinistas are on the cusp of victory, the Chamorros are actually they actually side with the Sandinistas. They they don't publicly express support for the guerrillas, but their their newspapers and their, their vast media empire publishes a lot of stories and a lot of media that is very critical of the Somozas and the National Guard, and that is either neutral or positive, you know, positive portrayals of the Sandinistas, or at the very least, the fact that the Sandinistas are trying to fight against the Somoza dynasty. Um, Now, of course, as I was saying, this stems back to the fact that there was a, a dynastic sort of rivalry between the Chamorros and the Somosas, but By the time that the Sandinistas actually take over, the Chamorros are, you know, they have a very similar line of thought to that of the U.S. government. They're hoping that they are going to be able to influence the Sandinistas and essentially control this movement once it actually takes state power and stops being a guerrilla movement. And they're hoping that they'll be able to moderate the policies of the Sandinistas. Now, of course, as as I was saying, this doesn't end up happening so the U.S. does keep on funding, does keep on sending aid to Nicaragua for a few months after they, the Sandinistas take power. And the Chamorros continue to, you know, generally speaking, continue to have a supportive stance towards the Sandinistas. But the Sandinistas don't change course. So they actually accept the U.S. funding and use it to fund socialist projects in Nicaragua, which is pretty ironic and gets the U.S. pretty incensed at this fact. So, you know, the Sandinistas are using U.S. money, to prop up state-owned enterprises, to recreate state-owned enterprises, to fund farming collectives in in the rural areas of Nicaragua. And the U.S. realises that the Sandinistas have principles, that they're not going to sacrifice their principles just to maintain a constant flow of U.S. aid and U.S. cash. And the commodities, likewise, begin to turn on the Sandinistas. Their rhetoric um, and the rhetoric of their media takes a very sharp turn and they begin to denounce the Sandinistas as communists. They say that they're Cuban proxies or Soviet proxies and that something needs to be done to either moderate them or... And once we get towards uh, the beginning of the 1980s, so the, you know, 1981, 82, 83, they're saying that there needs to be some sort of intervention in Nicaragua. Otherwise, the country's going to be turned into a, you know, totalitarian communist hellhole, which a lot of, of course, the oligarchic media did in Latin America when these movements took power. And, you know, this intervention that they asked for does, very sadly end up happening. So, of course, we have the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. He's, of course, an incredibly disgusting individual, very, very conservative, reactionary, and very, very interested in staunching the growth of these progressive leftist revolutionary movements in the global south and in Latin America particularly. So he freezes all aid to Nicaragua, and he implements a total economic blockade. So exactly the same as Cuba, to try and asphyxiate Nicaragua's economy. And that same year, in 1980, the US begins funding the notorious Contras. Now, the Contras, and now, of course, Contra in Spanish just means against, and, of course, the Contras are against the Sandinista government. They're against the Sandinista Revolution. They're composed of former members of the National Guard that had fled into neighbouring Honduras, into Costa Rica, and, into, and to the United States, um, and other disaffected supporters of the Somoza dynasty, for whatever reason. There, was, there were a number of different sort of class interests that tried to maintain the Somoza control over Nicaragua for differing reasons. A lot of businessmen, for example, end up uh, financing the Contra rebels as well. And they invade, essentially, Nicaragua from neighbouring Honduras and from Costa Rica, and they begin a civil war against the Sandinistas with U.S. support, with immense U.S. support, U.S. arms, U.S. black helicopters, all manner of logistical and military support is afforded to these Contras to try and overthrow the Sandinistas. Now, it's an incredibly brutal conflict. This, this becomes a horrific war. The, the death toll is, sits between 30,000 and 50,000 people, and the Contras are responsible. The United Nations has uh, recognized this back when the war was happening. The vast majority of these deaths and of the torture and of the rape and of the pillage was perpetrated by the Contras. They were trained by individuals um, who had received their own military education in the School of the Americas, which, of course, specialises in torture and in intimidation and in horrific treatment of prisoners of war and of enemy combatants. And that is exactly what the Contras commit to doing in Nicaragua. And, of course, part of their mission is to sow as much chaos and destruction and discord as possible to make Nicaragua ungovernable and to collapse the Nicaraguan economy.
0: You're listening to the second part of a much longer interview with Sasha Gillies-Lakakis. Sasha is a PhD candidate. He's a journalist at 3CR and he's also an activist and will continue with the story of the recent history of Nicaragua.
4: And, of course, as we were saying, they are supported by other Central American countries that are US proxies at this time. So Honduras... Is one of the main ones. The, the military regime there is providing essentially a, a leap, a leaping pad, a launching pad into Nicaragua, and they have refueling and resupplying stations in Honduras for the Contras. Um, and the same can be said for Costa Rica and, to a lesser extent, El Salvador. So at this point, um, sadly, it's a very far cry from the, you know, the Latin American unity of the 19th century when Central America worked together for a time, and we have. The Central American proxy regimes trying to cripple and intervene in Nicaragua on behalf of the United States. Now, this war drags on until 1990. So by 1988, the US have realized that they're not going to be able to overthrow the Sandinistas or Ortega. Um, But by the same token, Ortega is very aware that There's been a significant loss of life and horrific damage has been done to Nicaragua's infrastructure, economy and environment. And they also want the conflict to stop. They agree, the Contras and the Sandinistas agree to a ceasefire. They agree to hold elections in 1990 to put an end to this violence, which of course, as we know, came completely from the US and the Contras. And it's here, just before this election, that the Chamorros rear their head again. So Violeta Chamorro, who's the matriarch of the family at this point, runs as the candidate of the right-wing opposition. So she is, she essentially becomes the voice of more moderate right-wing groups in Nicaragua, but also the Contras. And this is really key, is that the Chamorros throughout the war, um, their media comes to support the Contras and their political dynasty finances Contra activities. So she becomes right-wing candidate running against Daniel Ortega, who, who is of course representing the Sandinistas. This is not a free or a fair election. This is an election held under duress. Ortega only agrees to the ceasefire because he is aware that the war is causing so much suffering and that Nicaragua would potentially soon become an ungovernable state. And the US, during the lead up to this 1990 election, publicly threatens to invade again so they actually publicly threatened to go beyond supporting the country with technical and military assistance and they threatened to intervene if the sandinistas win the election so at this point even the sandinistas are saying to their supporters vote for the right wing opposition because if we win they will destroy the country that this is actually the um opinion of a lot of sandinistas and of course that's what happens. The right-wing wins, not by a significant margin, but but by enough to command, or so to command supposed legitimacy in the context of a fraudulent election. And Violeta Chamorro becomes the president. And this ushers in 16 years of right-wing rule in Nicaragua to so the lost decade of the 1990s, like in many countries, where neoliberalism is implemented at full kilter. Data and assets are dismantled and sold off to private companies and to local oligarchies. Inequality and poverty increase dramatically, and that's even in the context of the war. It increases significantly more so. And we have a foreign policy emerge in Nicaragua that is once again subservient to the United States. Can I take you back to Colonel Oliver North? Yes, this individual is implicated like a number of US and other foreign people, uh, foreign individuals that are looking to intervene in Nicaragua. What I can say about this situation and individuals like North is that there is, you know, there is extensive corrupt and sort of like international factors at play in this conflict that go beyond Nicaragua and something that I did want to mention is, of course, the Iran-Contra affair, that's something I forgot to mention earlier, which is really, really, really critical as well in exposing, you know, this web, this, like, oligarchic web that are behind these wars and these conflicts and and all of this loss of life and this violence in Nicaragua. Now, of course, the Iran-Contra affair involved the U.S. using funds from illegal arms sales to Iran, so they circumvented their own sanctions, often through contracts with U.S.-based oligarchs giving preference to the US, to US military industrial companies to fund the Contras and to arm the Contras. So it just reinforces the fact that the US is willing to do anything and everything to stall Nicaragua's genuine development and genuine sovereignty. And, you know, it just shows that this is a, just one example of, of a long line of um, US interventions to this effect that, of course, go beyond the countries concerned and that, that involve all of these vested interests that have had an absolutely devastating impact on Nicaragua. You know, as we were saying, Nicaragua's economy was virtually non-existent by the conclusion of the Contra War. Their environment had already been destroyed by U.S. agribusiness, and it was, you know, you had the use of napalm in Nicaragua. Um, The U.S. military-industrial complex was benefiting off that as well. Of course, it was being used um, most notoriously in Vietnam earlier, and it was now being put to good use in Nicaragua to essentially burn out the guerrillas and to burn out supporters of the Sandinistas in rural areas. It just goes to show the international dimensions of this conflict and just how many vested interests there really were.
0: Can I also take you back to 1986 and the International Court of Justice ruling that the US was to pay Nicaragua $12 billion?
4: This is a landmark case because, of course, as you were saying, Nicaragua takes the U.S. government to court for all of the damages caused by the Contra war, by their financing of the Contras and all of the violence and the rape and the destruction of infrastructure that the Contras caused, um, with direct U.S. support and funding and training and weaponry. The International Court accepts the Nicaraguan case and rules in their favour, and rules, as you said, that the U.S. needs to pay Nicaragua. $12 billion to compensate for this, this horrific damage that's been done to the country and to the Nicaraguan people. Now, of course, the US simply refuses. This is also the point at which they remove themselves from the architecture of the International Criminal Court, and they say that they are no longer going to abide by its decisions or respect its decisions because they now have officially withdrawn their membership. And they, to this day, have not paid Nicaraguan a cent of the money You know, this again shows the U.S. has no regard for international law for respect uh, or respect for international norms. They never have, and they likely never will, because there is, of course, this awe of impunity. I don't even think they were expecting the court to rule in Nicaragua's favour. But they're too powerful, and economically they're too significant, to actually have to worry about any repercussions. And, of course, the U.S. to this day continues to fund the International Criminal Court quite significantly, but they don't belong to it, because that would then mean that they are actually, you know, of course, they have to be responsible for their actions. And Nicaragua taught them, well and truly, that the only way to sort of evade that response was to, was to essentially just go above the law and remove themselves from that architecture, you know, which is, which is quite significant. And it's, it denies a lot of justice that Nicaragua deserves, and it's money that Nicaragua needs. Um, You know, even today, Nicaragua is still a a poor country in the global south. Imagine what they could have done with that $12 billion. Some pretty impressive stuff, I would wager. And it would have been put to good use. It would still be put to good use. But of course, uh, they will never get that money. I think as long as the US government continues to behave the way it does and continues to have the interests it does in Central America, and of course, you know, we've seen the way that they they reject and violate international law time and time again. Um, Nicaragua is going to be waiting a long time, if not forever, for that money and for that justice. Nicaraguans are aware of this. Um, by 2006, they're aware that these neoliberal reforms and that the US dominance over their country again is just what it was in the 20th century. It's a con and it's detrimental to the Nicaraguan people, to their health, to their well um and to the country's sovereignty. In 2006, Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas are returned to power in an election. And they set about restoring the socialist project under very different circumstances. But fundamentally, to this day, they are committed to creating an economy and a society that works in the best interests of Nicaraguans and of the most vulnerable Nicaraguans, most importantly. And since 2006, they have won every single election, including most recently, last year in 2021, with 75% of the votes, so three quarters, of the Nicaraguan electorate voting resoundingly to endorse the Sandinistas and Ortega and their socialist project. So they've restored, you know, the power um, and the functioning of state-owned enterprises. They've given strong government support to collectives, to indigenous communes, and to these forms of of popular grassroots organization and economic activity uh, that is really significant in Nicaragua. And it's very sort of unique to nicaragua's history and context because of course this was the way that a lot of disenfranchised and marginalized groups survived in nicaragua they had to band together in rural areas and essentially run themselves autonomously because the state wouldn't look after them and wouldn't serve their interests but now what we have is the sandinista government actually financing these collectives and these communes these cooperatives to make sure you know, that they have enough food and that they can, they can live dignified lives and that they can contribute to the national economy through these popular forms of organization. And one of the most inspiring examples in Nicaragua of these, of this collective form of economic and social organization are the food collectives. Um, so the rural agricultural collectives who's, you know, really, really participative and emancipatory sort of form of organisation has actually led to really high levels of food production in Nicaragua, to the point that it is actually food sovereign. So Nicaragua could, and in a lot of cases, depending on the particular type of food, does actually not need to rely on any imports of food. So Nicaragua, if all trade was to be cut off tomorrow, would not starve. Every Nicaraguan would have enough food, and it is a sustainable system that means that Nicaragua, for decades to come, is going to be food sovereign and is not going to have any starvation, which is really, really mar- remarkable, particularly in the context of Central America. There's no malnutrition for children. Everyone has enough food. And as I was saying, of course, public health care and public education has been universalised. Public transport has been expanded, chiefly through bus networks across the country, so this is, you know, this is really inspiring stuff that is being implemented by the Ortega government and by the Sandinistas more broadly, who are finding a new way. Nicaragua has been working towards its own unique model of socialism in a very different context, in a very different situation to what it was in, at the start of the, uh, 1980s. Of course, there's no Soviet Union, there's no large socialist bloc anymore, but Nicaragua has found a number. Of other countries that are willing to engage with it in mutually beneficial a uh, win-win forms of cooperation and it's chiefly south to south cooperation so cooperation among underdeveloped states and developing countries now of course in latin america this includes cuba and venezuela which are the other two of the most you know people oriented and radical countries in latin america um, and they do a lot of their uh cooperation within the framework of the alba alliance to so the bolivarian alliance of the americas and that involves barter, so essentially the states exchanging goods that each other, that each one needs and helping each other's countries develop, whether that be in e- economically or in terms of healthcare or education. So of course Cuba supports Nicaragua with medical cooperation and um, with vaccines as well with COVID-19. Venezuela provides oil to Nicaragua um, and Nicaragua provides those two countries chiefly with food products. Because um, as I was saying earlier, Nicaragua is a food sovereign country, and it actually exports food. So this is really sort of promising stuff. It's quite important because Nicaragua is quite isolated from Central America. Most of the rest of Central America is, um, or until recently, actually was quite pro-US. Thankfully, now with the change of government in Honduras, and interestingly, even El Salvador, which has gone to the right, but is weird, in a weird way is is quite cool. With the United States at the moment is quite cold in terms of their relationship with the United States. Um, we might see a little bit more cooperation between Nicaragua and the rest of Central America, and of course one of the key other cooperation partners in this regard is China. Uh, Nicaragua officially uh, switched its allegiance or its recognition to the People's Republic of China last year, and up until that point it had recognised. Taiwan, which has a a complicated history. Nicaragua, of course, as a principle of its foreign policy, recognises the right to self-determination of small states. Now, of course, Taiwan is technically or is considered by some governments to be a small state, and Nicaragua more or less kept that state of affairs to be able to benefit off trade with both China and Taiwan. But, of course, now Daniel Ortega is radicalising his position on a lot of these sorts of foreign policy issues, um, and he officially recognised that there is one China, the People's Republic, and the Chinese have significantly stepped up their investment in Nicaragua as a result. It's having very positive effects. Trade output has increased dramatically in Nicaragua since last year um, because of their, uh, their cooperation with China. And they're also revisiting the idea of the Nicaragua Canal with China, so the, the Ortega government is actually entertaining the idea of actually fulfilling the ideal that was first created by Zelaya back in the um, 1890s and the 1910s of creating a Nicaragua canal that can bring benefit to Nicaragua's economy and people and also break the control, the stranglehold that the US has through its influence over the Panama Canal. This, this is quite significant stuff that's happening in Nicaragua right now. And of course, sadly, the US is determined now more than ever to unseat and overthrow the Sandinistas, as it always has been. And I think this became most prevalent and most visible In 2018 when of course the world became aware of very violent protests that were taking place in Nicaragua against the Sandinista government and against Daniel Ortega and his wife who was the vice president Rosario Murillo and of course this was portrayed as some sort of popular uprising against the Sandinistas there was very dishonest reporting with regard to the origin of the protests and of the violence they had claimed that uh, Daniel Ortega was implementing austerity measures in regard particularly to a pension reform, there were claims that Ortega was reducing the pension for everyday Nicaraguans. Now, what was actually the case was he was reducing pensions for private or private sector pensions, so those Nicaraguans that had opted out of the public pension system and was demanding a greater percentage uh, of business revenues so from pri- from the private sector to be put towards public sector pensions. so this was actually an attempt by Ortega to take a bit of money away from the most wealthy and the most privileged who, in all likelihood, don't need the money if they're opting out of the public system and putting it into the public pension system. Of course, the nuance of that situation was not made aware at all. And as for the individuals and the groups that were supporting this uprising against Ortega, where you had wealthy university students, um, you had former Contras, very notoriously, and you had the Chamorro family, whose media was incredibly intensely anti-Ortega and anti-peace. They were calling for significant levels of violence against members of the Sandinista government. Hundreds of Sandinistas were killed during the course of these protests. Um, A lot of them were tortured in ways reminiscent of the Contra War. This was documented, this was photographed. There's actually some very graphic images online for those who actually want to do their research of Sandinistas that were killed, of schools that were burnt down, the public radio stations that were destroyed. All in all, 200,000 jobs were lost because of the infrastructural damage and we now know of course that the United States through USAID and through the National Endowment for Democracy we directly behind the financing of these groups, um, and so was the european union they 're equally as culpable in all of the death and the violence and the destruction all of it unnecessary um, that was caused in two thousand and eighteen now thankfully the the revolutionary um, commitment of the people of Nicaragua to their government and to Ortega personally was so strong that this what was essentially a coup d'etat failed, and the people that were responsible for the violence were arrested and put behind bars for their crimes. There was an initial reconciliation process began. Ortega was in many ways sort of pressured into it by the international community, but he abandoned it because, of course, the right-wing opposition was not negotiating in good faith. They were calling for the dissolution of the Sandinista government and new elections to be held, even though, of course, Ortega won the election, the previous election, fair and square. He won with an overwhelming majority, and he was not going to violate the democratic rights of all those Nicaraguans that had voted for his government and for his party. And what we've seen since then is a radicalization of the Sandinista program. So, of course, he has now arrested some of the key cheerleaders of the violence that took place in 2018 and 2019. He arrested Cristina Chamorro, so, of course, the daughter of Violeta Chamorro, who now owns all of those right-wing and reactionary newspapers in Nicaragua. Um, Not only because she publicly advocated for the violence against everyday people, not only just Sandinistas, but everyday people that were supportive of the Sandinistas, but also because she was found to have been embezzling millions of dollars that had been donated to her newspaper and to her Chamorro Foundation from the European Union and from USAID. Um, So she had just been taking that money and using it for her own purposes, not even for the purpose of demonising the Sandinistas or supporting so-called civil society. She was just using that money for herself and for her family. So Ortega very rightfully jailed her for that crime. And he's additionally put a ban on the participation of parties in elections if they receive funding from a foreign country. Now, this was decried as an attack on democratic freedoms, but let's actually take a look at that law, which is prevalent In most other countries on earth, if a party receives funding from a foreign government or from an entity that is controlled by a foreign government, you are a foreign agent. That is the definition under international law and in most national laws around the world. And Ortega takes the sovereignty of Nicaragua very, very seriously. And to this end, uh, by implementing this law, he has prevented foreign influence over Nicaragua's internal affairs, which is a totally justified course of action to take, totally justified. This all in all demonstrates that the Sandinistas have not strayed from their roots. They have not abandoned their mass base, as the media likes to claim in in a number of Western countries, and of course, domestically with the right wing right wing news outlets. If anything, they've deepened the popular sort of roots of the Sandinista movement, and I think they've proven very very clearly with their domestic policy and with their foreign policy, that they are, in every sense of the word, living up to the legacy of Cesar Sandino and the original guerrilla movement that emerged all those years ago.
0: And you've been listening to the second part of my interview with Sasha Kelly's lakakis speaking about the recent history of Nicaragua. And you can hear more of Sasha on the Latin American Update program here at 3CR on Sunday morning at 10.30.
4: Online and in cinema, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival will be running online from the 1st to the 31st of July and
0: at Cinema Nova from the 21st to the 31st of July, canvassing the world's best docos from South by Southwest, Tribeca and Hot Docs, as well as the best Australian content. Check out the lineup and book today at
4: mdff.org.au or cinemanova.com.au.
3: The Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is a 3CR supporter. Hi, Hi. Hi. we're from Braver College and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. We're all
0: wary about viruses, whether they be influenza, COVID, monkeypox, but Emeritus Professor Stuart Rees has identified an equally dangerous and contagious pandemic, the lying pandemic, and it seems unstoppable. I asked Stuart if he knew the origin of this pandemic, how long it's been circulating, and who are those most affected?
2: Well, historically, in the West and across Europe, including Russia, I identified Catherine the Great and her, some of her staff as being great fabricators, uh, making claims about what she'd done, so that the, the sort of fake news epidemic, in a way, uh, is from a virus that started centuries ago. The fabrication of false claims of course, gained enormous momentum with the arrival of um, Trump. But uh, in, in, in every war, keeping the enemy in the dark by telling lies is regarded as a form of, in, quote, intelligence, unquote. But under Trump, with the enthusiastic support of Fox News and other murder media outlets, the commitment to lying seems to become accepted by in, in the united states at least 50 percent of the population and so the murdoch media loves it the, the spread of conspiracy theories about um in particular about uh, vaccinations or about democracy being run by a bunch of uh, pedophiles from a pizza parlor in washington and people believing it is as clearly as dangerous if more dangerous in the if it persists than monkeypox. Then Then we've got the, uh, and the last point I'll make, concerns the effort to achieve peace negotiations uh, uh, right at the moment about Ukraine. Unless there is truth, unless unless there are facts on the ground carefully confirmed, you can't build a, a treaty for peace. You can't build it on fabrication so that, um, Putin's lying to the, the Russian public and echoes across, across Europe have to be dealt with. You have to be grounded in reality to, to achieve a peace. It's a bit like a she did, I didn't conflict in domestic violence and the attempt to settle that. I mean, there has to be truth. I nearly strayed into saying, quote an element of truth but I'm not that that's unquote you can't base relationships on half truths
0: would you say that the prime minister of britain is infected with the virus no certainly i mean
2: he's lying through his teeth but when you watch him at prime minister's question times in uh, in the house of question time in the house of commons supported by all those lines and lines of Tory supporters, then you can see that fabrication of lying is okay. It's full of bluster. it's full of uh, conceit, um, it's full of uh, an assumption about the right to rule by doing whatever you can get away with. So that's pretty serious in Britain, and the, you can see that the Tories are frightened to expose uh, Johnson. If, of course, he is proved to have lied to Parliament, that's the, then the noose around his neck might, might, tighten. But at the moment, he's getting away with all that bluster and, uh, the pretense that it was all, uh, that disobeying the rules and lying, lying about them was all of no consequence. It's that absurd movement that we used, in sociology, we used to call postmodernism, which is, <laughs> there are no universals. My truth is as good as yours, etc. And um, that's a sort of moral intellectual anarchy. You can't, base, you can't base anything on that set of assumptions.
0: Do you think that the virus might have got into the, the body politic and seen the end of Morrison?
2: Well, yes, it clearly, it clearly spread from the mother country <laughs> to the Antipodes. And so Morrison, um, the, the great uh, advertising man, using whatever whatever marketing skill he, he thought he possessed, to often lie through his teeth. I mean, the, the graphic example, of course, is taken from the comments of President uh, Macron. I don't think I know that he told me a barefaced lie. The business of the... Um, car parks, the sports rorts, the purchase of land that was worth $3 million and they, they sold off for $30 million. I mean, that's all part of the the bluster and the bluster and fabrication. It's as though Boris Johnson and Scott Morrison are Tweedledum and Tweedledee. And again, you'd have to say, you only have to look at the front page of the Daily Telegraph that they had their cheerleaders, their daily cheerleaders from the poisonous influence of the Murdoch media.
0: It always amazes me that it seems the the more religious people are, the bigger the infection.
2: That's a very good question, because you can see the evangelical Christians ensuring the re-election, the the election and possibly the re-election of Trump. Their gullibility to all sorts of absurd stories about a second coming is part of their uh, part of their um, immersion, not just in holy water, but in a, pack of, in a pack of myths. And myths are just a polite way of saying saying lies. The question of, re- of religious influence, I mean, if you think that a great deal of the religious narrative is based on myths that people uh, are asked, it's often coated over with the word faith, and people are asked to believe, there's a certain gullibility that um, uh, certainly the religious right hang on to in a very conservative fashion, often among people who are poor because fundamentalism, poverty, uh, conservatism, belief in the absurd seem to go together. I mean, in a way, that got exposed. In, in our recent election to, to the benefit of Australia.
0: It seems to me, though, that the virus hasn't spread across the ditch to New Zealand.
2: Well, it, it looks as though it hasn't, but I, it has it not. But I, of course, I haven't been to New Zealand. You know, I've become a sort of somebody who's grateful for Jacinda, for what I know about Jacinda. It doesn't look as though it has. I'm not sure whether the... The fact that they um, don't have a Murdoch media as influential as ours, I'm not sure whether that's the the case. Um, Look, there'd be the potential, there'd be the potential for fabrication all over the place, uh, all over the world. the, The right wing influence, the so called populism, so called, well, it's not so called, it's authoritarianism, which is part of the pandemic insists that those people know best. You only have to look at um, Bolsonaro in Brazil. The terrible fabrication, the terrible lying that has led to the election of um, Marcos Jr. and Duterte's daughter in the Philippines. So a country that endured under Ferdinand Marcos years of imprisonment, disappearance, and torture and was eventually toppled by a people's revolt has now been broadcast via via, via social media as as a golden era. That's institutionalized lying on a big scale, which more than hints at the influence of of social media to um, say almost anything and broadcast it.
0: And then you have people like Bennett in Israel who can get away with saying that every Palestinian is a potential terrorist. Yeah,
2: the... Knesset, the members of the Knesset under Natali Bennett and before him Netanyahu and before him Sharon, really have produced the kind of um, intolerant anger, authoritarianism that led to the invasion of the US capital on January the 6th last year. And there they can get away, again they, uh, f- because of the uncritical stance of Western countries and media towards the policies of the government of Israel, they can get away with what they like. So you have somebody somebody like Naftali Bennett, the present Prime Minister, boasting that he's killed a lot of Arab Palestinians, and then he says, what is wrong with that? And of course, a reminder of that uh, attempt to stifle truth, to foment lying as a policy, is apparent last week in the murder of Shireen Abu Akhle the wonderful Palestinian journalist internationally respected much loved so that this murder of journalists trying to tell truth trying to report on what's happening is another effort to say uh, that lying is okay
0: so if we say that the lying that's going on is part of a pandemic, you'd say that the little white lie is like a a mild cold.
2: Sure, but it's a germ. And in a way, in every walk of life, whether it's in the family conversations or whether it's in school or it's in public addresses, we have to try to be empirically sound. In other words, if you don't have facts on the ground, you you can't make certain claims. I know hyperbole, I'm guilty of hyperbole uh, sometimes, I know. You have to guard against that in order to remain convincing. I guess I'm saying that understatement is is far more reliable than overstatement.
0: You write that lying creates a failed state. What do you mean by that?
2: Yeah, good, good question. Well, it means you can't trust anything, you can't believe anything. If, you, if there is no trust, you can't build a policy and you can't implement it because you couldn't even run a small organization if there's no trust. People have often said to me, are you a radical? I said, my response is, well, a radical is only, in, in my book, somebody who does what they say they're going to do because that adherence, that produces trust. If somebody like Jan from Melbourne Radio says, I'll ring you at 9.30, then I expect to be rung at 9.30. Jan rings at 9.30 and I trust her. So on that basis, we'll we'll talk again. If she said, well, I could ring you at 9.30, but it might be the following day and you might not turn up, (laughs) that sort of experience would erode public institutions, and and a nation-state.
0: So what we need, Stuart, is a truth vaccine with maybe four or five doses to ensure it doesn't regress.
2: Absolutely. Look, my close friend, the wonderful Archbishop Desmond Tutor, ran the Truth Commission, trying to tell the truth about apartheid. And it was... Valuable for a nation, but it was valuable for people who'd committed terrible crimes. They eventually acknowledged what they were what they were doing and in a way, sorry day was another attempt to may take a step towards the truth t- telling the truth about what powerful white men did to the indigenous people of of Australia. So the truth commission I, and I think Linda Burney is saying that um, the um, Statement of the Heart, the, the Uluru Statement, and the subsequent Makarata Commission, which I understand is is about truth-telling, is going to be that all those things need to to go together, not just um, a voice for indigenous people in the Constitution, but those other features of the Uluru Statement. That's an enormous breath of fresh air. i just make the last point. In a way, the persistence of racism across America is because they've never... They've never acknowledged what uh, the, the slaughter of indigenous people to make um, a capitalist America.
0: So it's not just the lies of the present; it's the lies of the past.
2: Correct. Yes. I mean, they, they come to haunt you and visit you, and, and yes, till you say, "I'm sorry. This is like now. Acknowledge this is what really what happened."
0: I can't let you go Stuart without asking you about the recent elections here. In Australia, in your comments, well,
2: I think there's an air, there's optimism in the air. There's a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Some people would say, "Oh, it's nowhere near radical enough." The Labor Party wasn't true to what it's supposed to believe. I'm a bit more pragmatic. If they introduce the uh, Uluru statement, if they introduce a um, commission on um, on corruption, a, a, a national ICAC, if they deal with um, the problems of, the massive problems of climate change, that would be great. I mean, of course, I, w- I hope they'll have the courage of conviction to do something about the treatment of asylum seekers and refugees. I mean, there's a chink of hope there. It looks as though almost certainly the, the lovely Sri Lankan family are going to go back to Bilalaya after the years of appalling cruelty towards those, four, those two adults and the two little girls. Yeah, I'm, I'm optimistic about it. In a way, I wouldn't mind if Labour just failed to get a majority because I think the obligation to consult carefully with the Greens and the Independents presupposes good government. I don't know why, just because we're so wedded to the two-party system, that's got nothing to do with uh, necessarily having good government. Lots of impressive governments across Europe have been coalitions. Actually, we've actually been governed by an appalling coalition called the Liberals and the Nationals for 10 years. And and that form of coalition has been rejected.
0: I think a lot of people would agree with you that uh, it'd be a good idea to have that with the Labour Party, that they don't get too lazy and just think that they can just pass bills in the lower house without... Someone thinking about it, but also there's the upper house, too, to think about, isn't
2: there? Yes, I, I, I don't know the makeup. I'm told it's going to be as many as 20, 20 green senators. I don't know that yet. If people like my friend David Shrewbridge from New South Wales are in the upper house, that's another breath of fresh air. Again, the, the issue of trust in the, trust in terms of dialogue and conversation and repeated conversation to re-establish trust has to be part of government. It's the, it's the key to running an organization, apart from quite apart from government. It's the key to being in a family or in a community.
0: Thank you so much for today.
2: Lovely to talk to you, and I hope this reaches at least one million of your <laughs>
0: listeners.
5: We live in hope.
0: Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> bye-bye. Okay, yeah, bye-bye.
3: You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, the voice of the community. 3CR, community radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976.
2: Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? you drop them in at 3CR and put them in the books and boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture
3: books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book.
0: dominated the mass media over the past weeks is China's move into the Pacific. So I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan to put some sense into the debate. We're given the impression, Nick, that China's just this new boy or girl on the block, but China's been around for a long time in the Pacific.
6: When I was living in Fiji nearly a quarter of a century ago, I was writing articles about China engaging with the Pacific Islands Um, in the late 1990s when I was in Fiji. China was providing uh, police training for the Fiji military forces at that time. There was a Chinese telecommunications base in Kiribati, and there was a scare in those days about China. So this is not new. And while China is an incredibly important power globally, um, not just in the Pacific Islands... I think there's a number of areas where where the framing that you see in the Australian media and the U.S. media is completely obscure. I'll just flag a couple of those. I mean, firstly, China is not the only player in what's a very crowded and competitive field of engagement with the Pacific Islands. As we see China, you know, diplomats coming and engaging with Pacific Island governments, um, seeking to uh, promote uh, economic, trade, technical deals and so on. There are many, many players like that, very active at the moment in the Pacific. Um, the European Union particularly is, is active. Last uh, September they uh, announced a cooperation uh, in the Indo-Pacific uh, agenda and a key part of that is uh, very close cooperation with Pacific Island countries. France, as we've talked about many times on this program, is a very active player, has been the uh, president of the European Union Council for the last six months, has a very active program around seabed mining, around uh, oceans exploration and research, and so on. Japan has a regular summit um, called PALM, the Pacific Area Leaders Meeting, between Japanese uh, ministers and Pacific Island leaders. And indeed, the Japanese Foreign Minister has just been visiting uh, Fiji. Germany has uh, become a, a dialogue partner. This is one of 18 countries that have a formal relationship as dialogue partners with the Pacific Islands Forum, the main regional intergovernmental organisation. Indonesia is an associate member within the Melanesian Spearhead Group, which is the five Melanesian uh, groupings, uh, uh, countries closest to Australia. So while China is a significant player and it's a big economy, um, it's not the only game in town. And I think, uh, you know, this sort of hysteria that we see often in the Australian media doesn't put China in the context where there's a whole lot of people are interested in engaging with the Pacific. Um, they've got nearly a dozen votes in the United Nations, a significant voting bloc as part of the Asia-Pacific bloc, and also incredible amounts of resources that uh, are there. So that's a really important thing that I think people need to factor in, that China is not alone in wanting to engage with island nations at the moment. But certainly they bring a lot to the table as a, as a major power.
0: While you're talking about that, Nick, they are talking about the fear that there'll be a military base, a Chinese military base in the Pacific. How many foreign military bases are there in the Pacific now? Well,
6: there are dozens and dozens of bases by the Western powers, uh, managed and and operated by the Western powers. The United States, obviously, particularly in the northern Pacific, um, and this goes back to 1898 when the the Americans defeated the Spanish in the Spanish-American War. Um, and seized the Philippines, um, seized Guam, the uh, the coup um, in Hawaii, uh, where U.S. Marines, ba- backing the interests of planter and missionary uh, elements, um, overthrew the Hawaiian monarchy and established Hawaii as a, a U.S. dependency. And so you have Pearl Harbor naval base um, in Hawaii, uh, Schaefer military barracks, an enormous U.S. Army barracks in uh, and 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 base in uh, Hawaii. The uh, Apra Harbour naval base in Guam, um, the Kwajalein missile range, tests into ballistic missiles and uh, uh, missile defence systems, so firing missiles from California to splash down in Kwajalein Lagoon, one of the largest lagoons in the Pacific Islands. And uh, the U.S. has a, a major facility that's been there for decades. France, too, uh, has a, a naval base at Pointe in New Caledonia and so on. So I think, um, you know, there's a certain cynicism where people getting all head up about military bases in the Pacific but uh, uh, and Chinese militarization And that's certainly a concern. Most Pacific people don't want Chinese military bases just as they don't want other military bases in the region. And that's why you have indigenous campaigns um, looking at uh, you know, the theft of land in Guam, in Hawaii, in other locations uh, related to the militarisation of the region. So this is not new. The Pacific's living with the legacy of uh, more than 300 nuclear tests by Britain, France, United States. Um, And unlike China and Russia, the United States has um, refused to sign the three protocols of the South Pacific Nuclear Free Zone Treaty, which was one of the initiatives taken by the Pacific to address this militarisation, to try and uh, step out of the nuclear arms race in the 1980s. And uh, you see that once again with the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, uh, which will be holding a meeting, uh, first meeting, this new nuclear ban treaty we held uh, in June uh, in Austria, Um, 10 Pacific countries, including New Zealand, have signed this treaty. Will Australia join them? That's a a real question.
0: And then we have the Australian base or planning a new base on Manus.
6: Yeah, I mean, Australia has a very active uh, defence cooperation program all around the region and uh, a program called the Pacific Maritime uh, Security Program, PSMP, Uh, There's a $2 billion program that's been uh, bipartisan under both Labor and Coalition for many years, supplying patrol boats uh, to Pacific Island countries, deploying um, Royal Australian Navy personnel. Uh, So there's small teams of of, uh, Australian Navy people in uh, um, a dozen Pacific countries working with the patrol boat program. Uh, These are really important for maritime surveillance, uh, for fisheries programs and so on, but give Australia a a significant intelligence advantage and Australia is currently expanding uh, military facilities um, uh, related to this program. So as you mentioned, in Lombrum, the United States and Australia have been talking about expanding the Lombrum Naval Base, which is a small PNG facility uh, in Manus Island, where we used to detain uh, offshore uh, processing uh, for asylum seekers and, uh, and refugees. At the moment, um, Australia is building up a, uh, a, a patrol boat base in the west of the Solomon Islands, Australia is uh, rebuilding the uh, Vanuatu Mobile Force barracks uh, in Port Vila. So Australia has extensive programs through the Defence Cooperation Program, uh, through the um, Pacific Maritime Surveillance Program and so on. There's a a very strong engagement from the Australian Defence Force and this is part of the problem. For a long time, you know, the United States regarded the Pacific as an American lake. It had this string of military bases across the northern Pacific It had Australia and New Zealand as allies through the ANZUS Treaty. And now I think the US is feeling uh, the competition, not just from the Chinese, although obviously that's the largest strategic competition that they face in the region, but even with, say, France and the European Union. And we saw that with the AUKUS agreement, where the three Anglo-Sphere powers, Australia, Britain and the United States, regarded France as a hindrance to their strategy in the region, not as an assistant, and so brutally and uh, cynically ruptured the... uh, the submarine deal that Australia had with France. That's a, a sign that it's not simply China that's the only player in broad strategic competition in the region.
0: And maybe it, it's a fact, Nick, that some of the media reporting on the Chinese in the Pacific gives the impression that these Pacific Islanders, they're a bit backward. They need our protection?
6: It constantly underplays the attempts to leverage this competition. Pacific Island countries, as small island developing states, have been for centuries literally manoeuvring between great and powerful empires. Um, The British, the French, the Japanese during the Second World War, the United States ever since the Second World War and so on. And what we see is that Pacific Island countries, most of them, have a policy that they want to be friends to all, enemies to none. That they are willing to engage with countries, regardless of politics, if it can open ways for economic opportunities, for development funding, to address the priorities that the Pacifics put forward around climate change, around development, around ocean management, and so on. As I say, the hysteria about China uh, really overshadows the abrupt nature that the Pacific countries, as we speak, are engaged in this dance with a number of partners. So, for example, Fiji. Fiji is a member of the non-aligned movement, joined in 2011 as, a, as the second Pacific Island country that's formally a member of the non-aligned movement, so it doesn't want to be part of the US bloc, doesn't want to be part of the Chinese bloc that wants to be non-aligned. And so we've seen over the last week that Fiji um, yesterday was hosting a meeting with China, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, as part of his regional tour across eight countries. But also last week, Fiji joined the US-led Indo-Pacific Economic Framework for Prosperity. piece of jargon is a new economic partnership agreement that the United States is forging with Japan, with Australia, with 14 countries, really as a trading block to counter Chinese trade offers. So Fiji is working with the Chinese on trade policy, but also working with the Americans on trade policy. And And Fiji is, I think, quite successfully trying to dance between the two major powers and say, We want a partnership with both on our terms. And you can see that even with Solomon Islands. Like, there's a lot of stuff in the Australian press that, uh, you know, it's bribery and corruption that's leading to Chinese influence. But, um, you know, some pretty smart politics going on, uh, even amongst an old stage like uh, Manasa Sogavari. He's been Prime Minister four times. You don't get to be Prime Minister in a country four times without a certain amount of political savvy. You know, we've seen in recent months... The United States, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, the European Union, beating a pathway to Honiara, and offering assistance, offering technical programs, offering investment—that frankly, they've refused or ignored for decades. Dancing with the devil—is China a particular threat? Yes, of course. There are issues around China and the repressive nature of the Chinese state that Pacific Islands have got to be careful about. But to the suggest they're not aware of those dangers is, is frankly, just racist. It, it suggests that Pacific Island leaders. Can't see that this is a process happening everywhere around the world. That the U.S. strategic competition with China, the alliance building that the Biden administration is seeking to do, is a global.
0: Where does all this toing and froing fit in for the countries who still recognise Taiwan?
6: One of the concerns that many uh, Forum Island countries have is that uh, this crowded uh, geopolitical competition that's going on, not just with the Chinese, but with Taiwan, with Indonesia, with the European Union and others, is drowning out Pacific agendas. You know, the Pacific Islands Forum has brought together countries who have common interests around areas like addressing the climate emergency, particularly around adaptation, loss and damage, um, the energy transition that every country in the world needs to make. There's a whole agenda around oceans, uh, managing the resources of the oceans, particularly fisheries, but also deep-sea resources, marine biodiversity. There's obviously questions enormous challenges, particularly for rural populations, to maintain agriculture, to maintain livelihoods. So these are, are core agendas that are pretty common across the Pacific Island countries, despite the diversity of size. You know, Papua New Guinea has 8 million people, bigger land area, bigger population than New Zealand. Then you've got tiny little countries like Tokelau and Niue, Tuvalu, which are, you know, less than 15,000 people. So there's an incredible diversity of situations across the Pacific. But that commonality around oceans, around development, particularly around climate change, is there. And I think there's a, even for whether you're aligned to Taiwan, as four countries still are, or whether you're aligned to Beijing, whether you're tied up with the Americans or the Australians or the French or whoever, those are common concerns And the forum has been an organisation to um, try and, you know, build a common consensus. Now, as people will know, Australia has been a member of the Pacific Islands Forum from the beginning, uh, from indeed the second year that it was formed. Yes, Australia has stood apart from its forum member countries because of its rotten climate policies under the Morrison government. And Penny Wong, during her recent visit to uh, Fiji, uh, won a lot of plaudits. By simply recognising, uh, and she said it herself, that climate change is an existential threat to small island developing states, um, and the uh, the government, uh, uh, new government under Althea Albanese, is posing more climate action than we saw under the coalition. Uh, certainly not enough. Certainly not uh, addressing the core issues that um, our Pacific islands have raised about the need to shut down the fossil fuel industry, to make a rapid transition away from coal, from oil, from LNG. Um, And the ALP government certainly isn't promising that. So that's a a looming fight um, that we'll see in coming months uh, in July when Albanese goes to the forum. But uh, certainly at the first stage, Penny Wong's been pretty warmly welcomed simply because she says climate change is a problem.
0: What did she say about Australian aid?
6: During the election campaign, the Labor Party announced a new Pacific plan for the Pacific family. Terrible jargon. And uh, one of the commitments was to increase um, aid to the Pacific by um, $525 million in uh, coming years. This is a significant input. Uh, At the same time, Penny Wong's also talking about strengthening uh, Chilean to Southeast Asia. And that's a shift because under the coalition, um, the aid program in Africa, in Southeast Asia, in East Asia was gutted, um, uh, to put money into the Pacific. So we'll see, uh, a, a small but steady increase in, uh, the foreign aid program from Labor and that'll be welcomed in the Pacific. Um, there are real questions though about the sort of conditionality that comes with these aid programs, with concerns so or whether it will be driving an Australian agenda. You know, one of the silliest things I've seen in the Canberra Press Gallery commentary over the recent uh, visit by uh, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is the suggestion that China wants to link development and security agendas through the agreements that they've been signing with Pacific Island countries in recent days. But going back to Kevin Rudd and the ALP government more than a decade ago, Australia had bilateral agreements with Pacific Island countries called Pacific Partnerships for Development and Security, okay? So Australia, too, made the connection between development and security going back more than a decade. So it's just nonsense to suggest that the Chinese are trying to link the two, whereas this has been explicit Australian policy for many, many years. And once again, there's a lot of criticism, which I share in, as a journalist working in the Pacific, about Chinese media management, the way in which... Uh, Pacific journalists have been uh, restricted from asking questions of uh, the Chinese. But can I say, this is not unique. Um, We've talked on the program before, for example, about how Australian journalists were constrained going to Nauru to ask questions about the offshore. You know, the the notorious silence and secrecy about contracts that were signed around offshore processing. And as a journalist, I mean, in, in 2013, nearly a decade ago, I wrote an article for Overland about what Australia was doing in Nauru and got a copy of one of the secret agreements, the MOUs that were signed around this. And, you know, when we signed the agreement for asylum seeker camps in Nauru, part of this partnership deal with uh, Nauru included the requirement for a study of the privatisation of uh, Nauru's telecommunications authority. They called for uh, so-called reforming of power and water services including the phased introduction of user pay system for power. So ordinary working people would have to pay more for power and water in Nauru. The MOU, uh, going back some time, uh, called for the implementation of a public sector reform strategy, including the, and I quote, affordable scale of salary payments and a substantial reduction in the size of the Nauru public service. So here was Australia, Involved in saying to Nauru, we'll give you, frankly, a bucket of money, or we'll give Australian corporations like Canstruct a bucket of money to run the offshore processing in Nauru. But in return, we want to see a program around privatization. We want to see about an affordable scale of salary payments to public servants in Nauru, i.e. wage cuts. We want a, a substantial reduction in the size of the Nauru public service. So the privatization of government services... Those were the days when people uh, pre-crisis when people thought neoliberalism was working, and we know that it hasn't. So I just think there needs to be a, a bit of a sense of history about this stuff when we're critiquing the Chinese. And look, there's plenty to critique. China, for example, is the largest market for timber from Papua New Guinea and Solomon Islands at the moment, and there's a great deal of resource exploitation around fisheries, around uh, timber, increasingly in the mining sector that need to be held to the same sort of environmental, social standards that we hold other corporations to. But, you know, uh, to suggest that the Chinese are uniquely evil in their hunger for, for resources just writes out the history of uh, Japanese, of Malaysian, of Taiwanese corporations. Um, you know, the whole history of Unilever in the Solomon Islands and PNG around copra plantations, commercial logging, like the Pacific has 70% of the world's tuna. Surprise, surprise that China is interested in the fisheries resources of the region, but they're not alone. And I think the real challenge, and we see this from civil society groups, from churches, trade unions, women's organizations across the Pacific, is to hold the Chinese to the same standards that they want to hold other countries to, that their aid and investment and trade programs actually benefit working people. And many Solomon Islanders, many... Fijians and so on don't want the Chinese police training their police force because they've seen what the Chinese police are capable of in Hong Kong and Xinjiang and so on. But at the same time, they welcome Chinese investment, Chinese partnership, and indeed Chinese added security threat to the region, which is um, climate change. And that's why you see Pacific countries being willing to dance with the devil the United States devil, and the Chinese devil, because they are the biggest powers in the world, and everyone needs to engage with them.
0: What are the people themselves in the Pacific telling you, Nick?
6: Look, there's very diverse voices in the Pacific, and it's hardly surprising. I mean, we're talking about 26 countries and territories. There's an enormous diversity in the Pacific of opinion, uh, between government and civil society, between conservatives and progressives, between people who live under French colonial administration, people who are independent republics, the Kingdom of Tonga. It's a very diverse area, so of course there's not one specific voice. I think generally people are pretty wary of China in a funny sort of way. Um, You know, these are very Christian conservative societies in many senses, and people want to hold on to their own land for economic and development opportunities, also for cultural and identity reasons so when they see china coming in and offering you know major projects around logging or fisheries and so on they're very aware about the uh, you know the environmental the social the economic impacts of these big uh, projects just as they are with us or australian or french projects and so on there's also in fact awareness about china because you often see um chinese uh, small and medium enterprises operating in the pacific in competition with locally run businesses You know, a lot of – we need to unpack this notion of China. You know, is it a unitary actor or are there multiple power centers in China? And I think it's – you know, there's a wonderful book by um, Australian uh, researcher Shahar Hamiri called Fractured China. You know, it's not just the Chinese state that we're talking about. We're talking about Chinese private corporations, state-owned enterprises, small and medium-sized businesses from new Chinese migrants who have come into the Pacific. I mean, it's often those small and medium things that are, are the, the least loved simply because they're competing with local businesses, supermarkets, trade stores, transport companies, and so on. And that's why you've seen anti-Chinese rioting across the Pacific on occasions in times of crisis. In 2006, particularly, you saw that in, in Timor, in uh, Dili, in uh, the capital, in uh, Honiara, in Nukualofa, in Tonga. Oh where Chinese uh, small and medium enterprises were burnt during rioting and so on. happened again in uh, 2009 in, in, uh, in P&G, and that's one of the things that the Chinese are saying, that they want to send in police to protect their local business owners um, uh, who are operating in the Pacific. So I think it's really important to unpack those. You know, What, what are we talking about when we're talking about China? Um, we're not just talking about one entity. Um, it's a fractured society in many ways and faces many weaknesses. I think that's the other thing about the scare campaign we see about Chinese military taking over the world. Hostility to militarization amongst ordinary people in the Pacific. They've lived through, you know, past conflicts. Li- they're living with the toxic and nuclear legacies of the last Cold War. You know, the U.S.-Soviet competition saw nuclear testing, saw the incineration of nuclear uh, of chemical weapons on Johnston Atoll. Uh, saw the dumping of radioactive and toxic materials into the marine environment after the the nuclear era. So Pacific Islanders, by and large, are very concerned about militarization, and that's why we've seen a very strong anti-nuclear sentiment across the region uh, that's still very deep, even amongst the younger generation who've grown up since the end of nuclear testing. So I think the glib notion that the Chinese are simply going to be able to come in and set up military bases is crazy. There are certainly concerns about this new security agreements. As I say, I as a journalist working in the region, I have no love of Chinese policemen any more than I do of, uh, of uh, the role of the Australian Federal Police in some ways. Um, and uh, you need to look at the actions. You know, the AFP allowed the Bali Nine to go off to Indonesia, and um, a couple of them were executed on that basis, uh, because the Federal Police, for its own interests, was willing to uh, sacrifice these young, uh, stupid people involved in drug dealing. You know, we have to look at what China's putting on the table when it talks about policing and security. And I think the really important thing is that we listen to Pacific voices, not just the governments, but the churches, the trade unions, the workers, the indigenous peoples' organizations, and their perspectives on security are very much an important part of this conversation. And those perspectives are actually missing in the hysterical uh, media coverage that we see of uh, this really big strategic change at the moment where China is asserting its role as a, as a great power.
3: Well,
0: many people would say that competition is good, but overall, is it a benefit to the people of the Pacific, or is it detrimental?
6: Look, I think the, the strategic US-China competition is, uh, you know, is a real problem. You know, It is diverting attention away from the core areas where people need to cooperate, and the biggest of those is climate change. You know, the United States and China are the largest emitters of greenhouse gases, both uh, historically with uh, the United States and European Union uh, with historical emissions, but most recently with China. You know, there's a danger that China will want uh, Pacific governments to shut up about coal, um, which is, uh, you know, a strategic and existential threat, uh, making a rapid transition away from coal, oil and other fossil fuels towards renewable energy. But China is, um, is acting on this question, um, and I think, you know, we need a more nuanced analysis of both the positive and negative aspects of, of China's role in the world. You know, there's plenty to critique, but at the same time, China is offering investment. China is offering trade opportunities, and can I say, China is the biggest trading partner for countries like Fiji and Papua New Guinea and Australia and New Zealand. And people in the Pacific would really like uh, you know, Australians to think about that, to think about how Australia is grappling with this challenge uh, so they are grappling with the same challenge. How do you deal with transnational corporations who want to plunder your resources without environmental damage?
0: Finally, Nick, it's been a week where the Pacific nations, the Pacific Ocean is at the centre of the world.
6: It always has been. (laughs) You know, the Pacific is the largest ocean in the world. It has incredible uh, diversity of peoples, of geography, of history, of culture, of languages. You know, and Australians are, are not really literate about the Pacific. A lot of the academic and media coverage at the moment. You know, I've been working on the Pacific for a long time, and I've suddenly discovered we have an awful lot of experts on the Solomon Islands. A whole lot of people who have suddenly got things to say about the Pacific without ever visiting there, without ever engaging with ordinary people, without ever learning the languages, without ever studying it through schools, through universities, through our media. So I think there's an enormous opportunity at the moment, given this geopolitical competition, that Australians are well placed to engage with our near neighbours, not just with the governments, but with ordinary people um and there's a whole lot of things that could and should be done about this uh without framing it through simply the US China strategic competition which is driven by this you know the strategic hardheads who want to talk about military bases all the time but to look at other opportunities for engagement around sport around labor mobility around migration around uh particularly action on climate change which should be the centerpiece of our engagement with um the, our near neighbors Penny Wong saying the right things, that climate is central to Australia's new uh, uh, Pacific policy. How long that lasts, um, we'll we'll see. You know, there are real contradictions for the Australian Labor Party. They're they're certainly winning brownie points very quickly by being not Scott Morrison (laughs) and watching Morrison's performance in 2019 at the Pacific Islands Forum. People should realise how on the nose the Morrison government was with many Pacific people's Pacific leaders. But... um, once the Labor parties pick the low-hanging fruit, they're going to run into some hard questions, and you can see this already. Pacific yes. leaders, uh, both uh, past and present, want action on stopping coal exports. They want action on reducing subsidies to fossil fuel companies. Uh, that's going to be hard for a Labor government with its very narrow majority in Parliament. You know, the media is overjoyed that France and Australia are talking again, uh, President Macron and Prime Minister Albanese held a phone call the other day talking about the need to rebuild relations. But what does that mean for decolonisation? Will the Labour Party support Kanak aspirations in New Caledonia for a new political status as they go into negotiations with Macron, newly re-elected? You know, will we side with our Melanesian partners in the Melanesian spearhead group from New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu, Fiji, who back the FLNKS in New Caledonia Or will we be uh, lining up with France as a colonial power? You know, Deputy Leader of the Labour Party uh, just last month, Richard Miles, said France is a Pacific country and our neighbour in the Pacific. Well, sorry, Mr Miles, France is a European country. It's a colonial power in the Pacific. It's recognised by the United Nations as a colonial power in the Pacific. And that challenge will be posed pretty quickly in coming months as the independence movement, FLNKS, and the French start negotiating a new political status agreement. Where will Australia stand? Will it want to rebuild its geopolitical relationships, its global relationships with France? And will that trump its regional commitment to human rights? These challenges are coming very fast down the pipeline for the new ALP government. And um, it's up to all of us to have a say in uh, in the, the the quality as well as the, the very fact about Australia's renewed engagement with the region.
0: Thanks as always, Nick.
6: Thank you, Jan.
3: 3CR Community Radio, giving the voice to the community since 1976.
2: 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches
3: in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022.
2: 3CR, keep community strong.
3: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM.
0: Hearing now from US veteran anti war activist Kathy Kelly about the conflict between Ukraine and Russia. What follows is the result of a course of several conversations between fellow activists. Nick Motton and Brian Terrell and U.S. actor Martin Sheen. And it's possible that in the near future, the statement will be delivered by Martin Sheen. But first, Kathy, can you introduce your fellow workers on this paper?
5: Oh, sure. Well, um, Brian and Nick are two people who have been collaborating for some time on the Pillar drones campaign. We were grateful for voiceovers that Martin Sheen, an actor, has already done for a TV spot 15-second ads that would call for an end to weaponized drones. And we are in dialogue with him quite a bit lately, uh, hoping that he may be willing to make a statement that has to do with the war in Ukraine. You know, he had played a role of a, a, a fictional president in, in a very popular TV series at one point. So, but you know, I think it is important to do, at this point, to make every overture we possibly can, uh, to people who, who might sort of, uh, accelerate efforts to bring an end to the war in Ukraine. It's, uh, it's such a crucial time for people to start making the steps of conciliation, and instead we, we see greater and greater escalation.
0: Well, can I ask you if you'd read A Path to Peace
5: in Ukraine? Oh, surely, and I'm I'm happy to do that, Uh, representing the other two authors, Nick Moturn and Brian Terrell. Hello, friends. It is being said that killer drones are a game changer in the war in Ukraine, but the game changer we need is a commitment by all the warring parties to stop promoting war in Ukraine. We condemn Moscow's violent aggression against Ukraine and sympathize with all of the victims. At the same time, we must take a look at the conduct of our own country, the United States,
3: and demand
5: that our government takes immediate steps to stop the killing in Ukraine. What are these steps? One, work with all parties to the war for an immediate ceasefire. Two, Announced that the United States will, under no circumstances, use nuclear weapons in Ukraine or elsewhere and will work to achieve that guarantee from Russia and other nuclear powers. Three, discontinue sending weapons and United States military personnel into Ukraine and work with Russia and other European nations to join in this initiative. Four, discontinue any military and political support for any individuals and groups in Ukraine who advocate white supremacy and Nazism. Five, pledge to join with all parties to the war in assisting the resettlement of refugees and rebuilding of Ukraine. And at the same time, pledge United States assistance to nations in which the United States has been involved in military action since 9-11. We in the United States are subject to propaganda from all sides in the Ukraine war, including from our own government, but we are at a point in the history of the world and humanity in which our very survival depends on our taking guidance from those calling for an end to the killing. I am a Catholic and a devoted fan of Dorothy Day, Daniel and Phil Berrigan, and Thomas Merton, and of course of Martin Luther King Jr. and Mahatma Gandhi. All these people would agree with Pope Francis, who has said, may the weapons fall silent so that those who have the power to stop the war hear the cry for peace coming from all humanity. How can we fulfill our obligations to stop our our global climate catastrophe if we pour our resources and energies into wars? Earlier, I mentioned killer drones. I want to end by saying that I feel we all must reflect on the popularity of a weapon that we humans can use as our proxy to kill other humans. What does this kind of weapon and thinking mean for our future as humans? The use of weaponized drones is a history of assassination, gross harming and terrorizing of civilians, of making killing easier and easier, and of causing severe emotional problems for drone operators, sometimes resulting in suicide because of what they witness. Proliferation of weaponized drones can lead to nuclear annihilation. They settle nothing. They make the world more dangerous. They must be internationally banned. We must ask ourselves whether drone war thinking is enabling proxy wars, because proxy wars are now not only causing great human suffering, they are leading inevitably to the end of humanity. Thank you for considering these thoughts.
0: And of course, there are many, many other people who have similar thoughts, but find it difficult in our mass media to get their voices
5: across. Well, I I think that's surely true. I think there are some indications in both the Washington Post and the New York Times major mainstream media papers here of a beginning suggestion that there has to be restraint in, in the United States support for war in Ukraine and a suggestion that uh, this is something that it, it could lead to insoluble and ongoing problems so at least recognition of the terrible terrible dangers of, of consistently escalating but, um, when it comes to the televised presentations, uh, the drumbeat for continued war and a sense of victory and Nancy Pelosi saying we won't stop until victory is attained is very, very dangerous and disturbing. I don't think people in the United States are cognizant of the horrors of nuclear war. There's been such an assurance that, well, it's not really going to happen. And, uh, a measure of denial even amongst the defense professionals and and the military suppliers and of course their life meanings are coming from being people who uh, become more and more proficient at waging war.
0: Talk about Richard Falk. He was a very important person a number of years ago regarding Palestine and also what Jeremy Corbyn has been saying.
5: Well, I so appreciate Richard Falk for saying we benefit from describing traditional war and geopolitical war. And he describes President Vladimir Putin's invasion of Russia as a traditional war, and and he condemns it. But he also talks about the geopolitical struggle simultaneously being waged in the region. He believes that it's definitely a time for conciliatory steps. Rather than escalation. And he points out what these steps could be, such as um, clamoring immediately for a ceasefire, working toward negotiation, recognizing the security needs of Russia as well as of Ukraine. The idea that NATO is, you know, almost like a cartoonized version of things, the good guys and anybody who is not going along with uh, U.S. and NATO demands are the bad guys isn't helpful at all. And Jeremy Corbyn uh, recognizing now how absent elected leaders are from any forward-moving way of dealing with climate catastrophe, pandemics, and nuclear weapon proliferation. For instance, we in the United States have to recognize that our entire Congress Including Barbara Lee, who used to be the one person who would, you know, refuse to support wars. Uh, the so-called squad, they've all, Bernie Sanders, they have all voted for the extremely bloated military budget, which is now moving into, I believe, $840 billion for one year. The $40 billion for war in Ukraine, or military and other assistance to Ukraine. So Corbyn is saying we we can't rely on these elected leaders any longer. We have to start to sort of realign the people who have the vision of a a survivable future, start to build our communities and our organizations and build as much solidarity as we possibly can.
0: And if you think of how much of that money should have been paid to Afghanistan in reparation for the war on their country for all those years?
5: Well, that's a particularly bleak situation. You know, Afghanistan has been pushed to the brink of collapse. country is not producing enough food and the prices for food are skyrocketing. People are unemployed and desperate and uh, they are now... Saying according to the United Nations officials that one million Afghan children are facing severe acute malnourishment and could be that people just simply will not have the wherewithal to feed their families and you can't just keep on giving handouts and a lot of the handouts are unfortunately uh, under the control of people who don't distribute the food equally and and that's very difficult for the United Nations to um, manage to overcome because there are so many corrupt entities within, who have a great deal of power within Afghanistan.
0: Do you want to make any comment, Kathy, about the, the most recent shooting and we know that there are shootings virtually monthly or maybe weekly in the United States but nothing seems to be done.
5: No, I don't think the will is there. I think the Republicans um, don't care. They want to um, solve the problems of uh, school shootings by uh, turning the schools into fortresses and homeschooling. But they do not want to reduce the number of guns. And I think the the problem of, of our country having as basically the dominant religion militarism is also feeding into the extreme danger of people glorifying having weapons using weapons feeling protected and secure because of their weapons you know this militarization of our society is is something that's deep and has many many tentacles and there's been an acquiescence to it on the part of universities corporations pretty much owned by the National Rifle Association lobbyists and other now new groups of of weapon makers and uh, by the people who are manufacturing the weapons that we sell all over the world our top crop is weapons we sell more weapons than the next 11 countries in the world that are major arms manufacturers combined so this kind of militarism is of course going to lead to more and more people having guns and afflicted with various kinds of mental illness believing that that this is what they're called to do that this is a good thing uh, it's extremely dangerous and i think uh the grief and the agony afflicting so many people who've lost their loved ones and the child survivors in I mean, they will be traumatized for the rest of their lives, as are the soldiers who come back from wars with PTSD. And and when you think about the shooting in Buffalo, you know, that was a community that had nurtured care and mutual concern for one another uh, for so many, many years, even though uh, they'd been neglected in terms of social services in many significant ways, because of the racism in our society, so what we are facing right now is, is is going to call on people everywhere to build community, share resources, try to live more simply, and repudiate the idea that killing solves problems.
0: And as you said, that deep-seated racism
5: in the United States. Yes, I think a a tolerance of this notion of white supremacy, we see it with um, the handling of the January sixth insurrection at the capitol and and the ways in which it's uh, it's it's very difficult for the people investigating to get Republicans, for instance, to comply with subpoenas to testify in front of groups, and we see um, President Trump being fated and uh, still holding a great deal of control over many people in the country and I think that it's got to do with the kind of fear and greed that feed racism.
0: Well, you're coming into summer, we're coming into winter, you're starting to feel climate change?
5: Ah, yes. Um, There are wildfires raging in many parts of the country where the ground is very arid and dry and the uh, heat waves have been escalating. I think that the reality of Climate catastrophe is, is beginning to become so much more evident to people, especially the younger generation, and I hope somehow they'll be able to persist without falling into despair. You know, Jan, I just today watched uh, about eight young people in a collective at the Agro Paris Tech institution who were going at their graduation to – Uh, make an appeal, well they made an appeal to all of their peers saying desert, don't go along with these systems that will continue to perpetuate ways of engineering and promoting the values of major corporations that don't care about the planet, do not work for those people and and they each uh, called upon their peers to desert the uh, profession that they had been trained for. Thank you Jan and you know you can find that uh, video on YouTube uh, it's very very compelling and I it's actually to me a source of great hope to, the, the, the young people all spoke in French but there were English subtitles and I, I think your listening audience would really like to view that
0: And the title of it?
5: Well it's A Call
0: to Dessert and as Kathy says, it is in French, so if you've got good French or, you know, how to translate, it's a call to dessert. And, of course, that was Kathy Kelly, and he from the US. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.